Good morning. Oh, there it is. You have to turn it on. Uh, that was my bad. That was my bad. See, I'm panicked. I'll just share with you. When you have one of these, sometimes you forget to turn it off, and then you're singing in things. And so that could be tricky. So I wanted to make sure it was off earlier, and I forgot to turn it back on. Good morning. My name is Johnny Reeve. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to be able to open the Word of God with you all. Turn to James chapter 5 in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front, or you, I'm sure you have one on your phone, etc. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to be there. We've been in James for many weeks now. We're going to continue in it, going through verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. But before I do that, I just want to be upfront. We're talking about money this morning. Okay, yes, all right, whoa, okay. Uh, money can be uncomfortable for some, it can be awkward for others. Um, it can also be a little bit tricky because sometimes people are just like, you know what, I don't need to worry about that. I don't struggle with that. I'm not wealthy, so I'll just kind of tune out for a little while. And, uh, but I, I encourage you, the reason I say this up front is because uh, God has something for us this morning. He does every time we open his word, right? But sometimes we can sort of tune him out because we think it doesn't apply to us. Or it's awkward, and so we just don't really want to listen. So I encourage you, don't do that. Don't tune out. God has something important for us so that we can know him better, we can love him fully, we can obey. Uh, so let's read this passage. Uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. It says this, uh, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us this morning. We thank you for your word that is truth. We thank you that you are gracious and good uh, to correct us. That you give us your word, and sometimes it can be hard to hear but it exposes where our heart is when it strays from you and it trusts in other things. And we pray this morning that you'd help us to be humble, that you'd help us to be honest, you'd help us receive from your word truly, and that we could love you completely with our whole heart and all of our life. We pray this in your name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be talking about wealth. We're going to be talking about money this morning. Uh, and uh, as we do, I want to call our attention, a lot of that text that we just read has so much to do with the chapter before that we went through last week. So if you weren't here, don't panic. I'll recap for you. Uh, so uh, chapter four, James is giving us a warning against worldliness, right? And he actually uses a lot of the same language uh, in different ways. So in the very beginning of chapter four, he is talking about this tension uh, of desire that's within us, right? There's things that we want in our hearts that maybe we shouldn't have. We kind of go back and forth, warring in those things and saying, I want this thing. God says no, right? There's this tension in our hearts and in our desires. But then he goes further. He says, uh, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. Well, we talked about that in chapter 5 just now. 
It says you covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you're going to spend it on what? Your desires, your passions. You're going to spend it on the wrong things. And then he says this beautiful phrase that I, uh, I want to highlight. He says, don't you know that if you're, essentially, if you're becoming friends with the world, that means you're being, uh, becoming an enemy of God. Right? Friends of the world, enemies with God. And I love that because that's something we would never say. Right? And it doesn't sound that bad. Friends of the world doesn't seem too bad. Friends are good, right? What's the world? I don't know. But in biblical terms, the world is the opposite of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is good. The world is bad. The kingdom of God is light. The world is darkness. The kingdom of God is pure. The world is wicked. Right? Do you, do you see the distinction? So when you say I'm friends with the world, you're saying I'm friends with darkness. I'm friends with wickedness. But again, we would never say that. I love that he uses the word friend too because it talks about, and we're going to kind of open this up more, the subtleness of the concessions our hearts make. Right? So we're saying, oh, I'm, not, I'm not wicked. I'm just friends with it. Right? I'm not, I'm not a dark person. I'm just friends with it. Right? It makes it sound better. It's a way that we can sort of justify the behavior that we have or the way that we think, the way that our life works, the decisions that we make. And so for, for the reason I bring that up is in chapter 5, as we go through this, this is sort of a zoomed-in specific dive into one particular category, which is wealth, which is our resources, which is our money, our stuff. And it's not just... So be careful, when we talk about wealth, it's not just something we have. And it's like, oh, it's kind of bad, but I'm fine, and there's no attachment there, right? James is saying in, in chapter 4 that the war here is in our souls, and it's deep. Right? This isn't just like, oh, be careful, and it's, it's fine. How you deal with wealth has an effect on your, your eternal life has an effect on your soul, and in fact, it has an effect on the trajectory of all of your life as well, the progression that your life takes. So it's not something light. And so there's a deep warning here, and we see even the warning to the rich in chapter 5 is you see the progression of a life lived for riches, what it, what it brings. And what we're going to see this morning is that a love of wealth leads to ruin, but the good life is found in love of God. That's what we want, right? We want the good life, right? A love of money leads to ruin. We think it leads to the good life. But the good life is found in love of God. So let's get to work. Uh, so the first thing, chap uh, verse 1, chapter 5, come now you rich. Uh, the first thing I want us to know and understand is that we're rich, Right? And it's talking about wealthy people. This, this particular verse or this passage feels different because typically James would say, don't do all these things and then remember Jesus, come back to him. That's not really here, is it? It kind of falls off a cliff, right? It's like you murderers and then the end, right? Uh, so it feels more like an Old Testament prophet um, speaking judgment over people. And that's probably the case. He's probably speaking to non-Christians potentially in this particular passage. But we still have a lot to glean from it because we're wealthy, right? So when he says, come now, you're rich, he's, 
in a lot of ways, talking to us, because we are rich. But the, the tricky thing about wealth is that it's comparative. So we would never really consider ourselves rich, because we always know somebody who's more rich than we are. And so we're in the middle, which might be more made up than we'd like to think. Right? Oh, no, no, I'm not rich. My friend is, though. Right? My neighbor is. My boss is. Right? But I'm not. But I want, I want you to know, I want us to know that he's speaking to us. Just a few things to drive that home. Did you know the average income in a U.S. household is $63,000? That's top eight in the world. So you make more than 187 other countries. Uh, monthly expenses for the American consumer are $5,000 a month. There's lots of people that don't make $5,000 in a year. Right? But we spend that much in a month. 90% of Americans over 25 have a high school diploma. And that, the math on that is $12,000 a month, or I'm sorry, a year per student. That may not be money you spend, but it's spent on you. So that's K through 12, right? 34% have a bachelor's degree of Americans over 25. That's about $120,000 on average. And then a lot of people have an advanced degree, 13% over 25 have an advanced degree, that averages out, depending on the degree, $66,000. So by the time you're done with college, you've spent, or it's been spent on you, a quarter of a million dollars or more. Like, think about that wealth. And it's not just money, it's opportunity to get jobs, to, to, to have things others don't, to build resources for yourself. We are wealthy. So we need to take this to heart. And to be clear, this isn't like, let's bash everybody over the head if you're wealthy. Having wealth in and of itself is not evil. In fact, the Bible says that it's a blessing. Right? But we're talking about how we use it. Right? We're talking about how we deal with it in our lives. Because what we'll see is wealth takes the place of God. It, in fact, wealth is a great God. Right? It provides for you, it makes you feel safe, it gives you what you want. But God in his goodness says, no, it's a trap. It promises a lot of good things and can't fulfill it. Right? So we have to be careful. We have to be careful. And we're going to see in this passage, and we already we read through it, the progression that wealth leads us in. And we see it's sort of a, a path that leads down. right? So the first thing I want us to see is that wealth leads us to believe in it. Wealth leads us to believe in it. Let's look at verses 2 through 3. It says this, You're... Riches have rotted in your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. So you see this picture of this person that's hoarding all these resources, but so much so that they're starting to go bad, right? But even things that don't typically go bad, right? It says things are rotting, right? So we're thinking like food and agriculture, those sorts of resources, He's throwing away food. It's gone bad. His garments are moth-eaten. I don't know if you've ever had a piece of clothing get moth holes. Probably not. Um, but that happens when things are, are in a dark place and they're untouched for a really long time. Right? So what we're talking about is excess. We're not talking about the shirt you wear every day, the coat you wear every day. We're talking about things that you have so much of that it's in a dark storage closet somewhere that you've never touched in years and years and years. We're getting holes in it. We're talking about excess, more than you need. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Gold and silver don't corrode. 
So it's sort of an ironic statement there in the sense that you have so much stored away that is, has so much value, but it's just sitting there, so it's actually worthless. And it says that that will be evidence against you and will eat your, eat your flesh like fire. You see this, this language of judgment. You're storing up all these things, and in the end, it's worthless to you. It's of no help to you. Because you've laid up treasure in the last days. So your trust in the last days is, oh, I hope I have enough. Here's all my stuff, and it's of no use to me. It's going bad. It's worthless. And that parallels us to, with that language, parallels us to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus, Matthew 6, says, Don't lay up treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures in heaven, where moth and rust can't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. And then he says what? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so you see in these first couple of verses, wealth has led this person to believe in it. It's, they've given their heart to it. Right? Wealth is wrapped around their heart, and now it's driving their life. It's driving their decisions. And it's led them to judgment. It's led them to trust in things that actually can't save them. They're coming to grips with that now. Right? Their life is full of misery and destruction and ruin. So let me ask you, because this is what wealth does. Have you ever heard the whispers of wealth? Whispered to you and, and kind of made a promise. Like, oh yes, you, you need this because it'll make you important. You need to buy that because you'll, you'll look valuable or important or cool. You need this or else you won't be safe. You won't be protected. You need this because otherwise you won't be provided for. You'll be left with nothing. Wealth can make these whispers and promises to you. We fall for them, we believe them. And what's more, our own hearts are deceitful. So we're wired, the Bible says, with desires that go against God's. And then wealth comes along and promises to fulfill those things. Apart from God. And it, it doesn't work. Let me give you some examples. Maybe you were really poor growing up. And so you made a deal and said, I'm never going to live like that. Right? And so you work and you amass wealth. And wealth actually says to you, yeah, let's do that. Let's build a life where we're not poor. We're never going to have to live in poverty. Let's do that. But we do that in a way that, that doesn't honor God. We don't bring God into that picture at all. It's a trap. Or maybe uh, you moved around a lot. You didn't have a lot of stability in your home as a kid. And so you said, no, I'm never going to do that. I'm going to live in the same place. I'm going I'm to get a great house. I'm going to to, to wrap my whole life around it. And wealth says, yeah, let's do that. I'm in. Let's, let's do it together. And you start to build your entire life and you idolize your home and your stability and all that you can amass there. Or maybe your parents worked all the time. And so you said, I'm never going to do that. So you work really hard to amass as much wealth as you can early so you don't have to work all the time. You can be around for your family. But then wealth says, yeah, let's do that then you kind of like your standard of living. And you kind of don't want to stop working. And you keep working. That's the trick and the trap. Is wealth promises all these things it can't fulfill, and it keeps you in this cycle where you need more and more and more to be okay. And it lies to you. It gives you disordered desires. And we just fall for it. 
right? Wealth leads us to believe in it. And we put it in the place of God. John D. Rockefeller, recognize that name? Very wealthy American, probably the most wealthy American. Uh, his inflation-adjusted net worth was around $400 billion. So just for fun, I think the wealthiest person currently is Elon Musk, $223 billion, so almost double. He was asked a question once of how much money is enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. $400 billion, and it wasn't enough. It needed more. That's the lie on the trap of wealth. We think we can put the brakes on it. Can't. It's wrapped around our heart. We keep going, we keep going, keep going. We need more and more and more. Because wealth promises all these things it can't fulfill, it needs to keep going. We need to amass more. It makes promises it can't keep, but it does drive our life, and it puts itself in the place of Jesus. And we do this all the time. We think of lots of examples. Um, have you ever seen an ad on TV, to be honest, and you said, oh, that person looks really cool in that item of clothing. I will buy it. I will also be cool. And then you buy it, and you put it on, and you look at yourself in the mirror, and you just, it just doesn't really work. Don't feel so cool. But we do it, right? We do it. And we're convinced in our head, ah, it didn't work, but maybe next time, right? And we keep doing it. We keep doing it. I guarantee, myself included, you're not wearing what you're wearing because it's comfortable only, right? Right? We fall for ads. It happens. And we're inundated with them. Uh, I guarantee a few of you, maybe more, have a hobby that you put resources into that you probably don't even like, right? But you do it because you want to be interesting or valuable or cool or important. Uh, here's another one. I remember my first job. I got paid not very much. But I was amazed by how much it was because it was my first job. And I was like, I'll never spend all that money. Never. And then, ever. And then, I'll li then I lived life and I realized how the world works. Um, and what I found, though, is this funny. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm never going to spend more than this. And then my income went up a little bit. Oh, and so did my needs. It's weird. And then my income went up more, and so did my needs. It just kept going up higher and higher. Isn't that funny that our, our standard of living constantly increases our needs with our income? Because we need more and more and more and more. And we're really subtle about this, too, because sometimes we couch it as protection. No, no, no. And I, for the record, okay, if I step on your toes this morning, just realize I'm stepping on my own, okay? Just, it's okay. Um, we couch it as protection. Oh, no, I need the safest car. It just happens to be the nicest and most expensive car, too. It's safe, though. Or I, we did this, my wife and I, we did this with kids. My baby needs the best, right? It needs a stroller wrapped in gold and leather. It needs it, okay? It can't speak or walk or do anything, but it needs it, right? Safety. Oh, I need, I need the house alarm. I need 10 of them. I need, you know, I need, I need all of these things to be safe. And I need a retirement that's huge. I need all the IRAs. I need all of them. Right? But we couch it as protection. We justify it. It's subtle. It's subtle. But then we get all these things, and we get stressed out about them. That's the trick. We get anxious about all of them. Things we think will actually help us make us anxious. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian, said this. This is true. Ready? Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But, in truth, they are what causes anxiety. Now, the Bible says this, too. Remember that passage in Matthew 6 where we said, lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth? Well, it comes right after that. 
Anyone? The passage right after that, what is it? It's a quiz. Don't be anxious. Go, go and look. All right, don't be anxious about anything. God will provide for you. He sees the sparrow. He sees the lilies of the field, right? He knows. He's wise. He's good. He knows what we do with stuff. He knows how our hearts work. Right? So he knows that wealth is going to lead us to trust in it over him. So wealth leads us to believe in it. Next, verse, uh, verse 4, wealth leads us to deceive. It says this, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So here we have this wealthy landowner that promised to pay these workers, and then didn't, right? So he defrauded them. He promised to pay, and then he said no. And this, goes in, uh, this is in the Bible. In, in Deuteronomy 24, there's actually laws against it because these workers, were, they're working daily for that pay. They needed it. They were living day to day. So for you to say, yeah, 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 don't worry. Just come work the fields. I will pay you. And then they come back. They need to buy things that night for their family. And they say, no, I can't pay you. Sorry, come back tomorrow. Right? You're defrauding them. And that language, too, of the, the personification of this wage is crying out for justice to the Lord. What does that remind you of? Remember when Cain killed Abel? What, what did God say? The, I hear your, your brother's blood crying up from the ground for justice. So you see the progression now, right? First, the love of wealth sort of wraps around our hearts, starts driving our life. But now it's leading us to things that we never thought we'd do. Decisions we never thought we'd make. We're starting to swerve into dishonesty, justification, dishonest gain. And yet we have to do it because our heart's wrapped around it. It's driving our life. We have to satisfy the need for more and more and more and more. Now, you're probably sitting there saying, I don't know that I've hired a worker and then defrauded them. Fair. We do this a lot in different ways. Uh, it's, it's tax season almost. Well, it's almost tax day. I know that because it's the day before my birthday. Very sad. Uh, 1.6 million people cheat on their taxes every year. It's a lot. 75% of employees have admitted to stealing from their employer at least once. That's a lot. And those are the people that admitted it, right? Three out of four. There's other ways too, though. We, have you ever just promised to give somebody money and didn't do it? Whether you owed it to them or not, irrelevant. Promise, oh yeah, I'll, I'll give you money, I'll Venmo you. Don't. Have you ever made a business agreement with somebody and changed your mind? Impacts them financially? Have you ever nickeled and dimed somebody, a low-income worker, for a job they're going to do? Just bringing their price down even though you kind of know that they need to charge what they're charging so you can get a deal? Have you ever gotten a job offer, accepted said job offer, got another job offer for more money, turned them down, took this one? See, when we live for wealth, it drives our decisions and the progression goes deeper. We start to swerve into some maybe at best gray territory decisions. But at worst, we're being deceptive. And we're not just deceiving other people, we're also deceiving our own hearts. 
Right? We're, we're making decisions where we have to justify what we're doing. No, no, I can cheat on my taxes because the government's corrupt. It's fine. Or, or they did a terrible job on that work I hired them for. I don't have to pay them full price. It's okay. It's okay. Or my employer doesn't pay me enough anyway, so it's okay that I, I steal office supplies or take a day off. It's fine. Now, there's one other I want to add into the mix here that we do. It's a little on the, on the fence, but I'll say it anyway. Is uh, we isolate ourselves in how we deal with our resources, with our money. Right? There's, a, there's a point where we're not open really at all. We're closed off, and honestly, we're, we're kind of secretive about our own finances. Right? Like, who knows how much you make besides your employer? And your spouse doesn't count. Okay. Who knows? Who knows how you spend? Who knows some of the issues? Because we all have them. The issues you have with money, right? Maybe some tendencies you have that aren't so good. Who knows about that? That can call you out or encourage you. See, sometimes the reasons why our interactions with money are awkward is because people make assumptions. But they make assumptions because you lock it all down and tell no one. Or somebody has to make an assumption and they're trying to do it out of, you know, goodwill towards you. So maybe we should be more open with our finances, right? Maybe other people should know. Because the enemy would love to use isolation to tempt you into sinning in these categories. That's why this happens. No one knows who can say anything. Right? We lock it down on purpose. Then no one, who, who's going to tell me how to spend my money? You don't know what I make. So wealth leads us to deceive ourselves, our own hearts, and others. And lastly, wealth leads us to destruction. Verse 5. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So we see the progression continue. Now we're in destruction. A place we never thought we would be. We thought we were living the good life. We thought we were getting all the stuff we wanted, all the promises answered and fulfilled. Instead, we're in ruin. Hey, what does it say? We're sort of this outward versus inward reality. We're happy, we're fulfilled, we're successful, we have all the things we'd ever wanted, but we're walking towards slaughter, towards death and destruction. Right? We're so rich, we're so fulfilled in our stuff that we're oblivious to where we're going. We're oblivious to the state of our soul, to the state of our life. Even the people that we're leaving in our wake of the decisions we're making. 1 Timothy 5 says about this person, the one who lives for pleasure is dead even while they live. So is that what we want? To be happy and fulfilled on the outside and dead on the inside? That's the trick of money, right? We want it. We're just anxious. We're nervous, right? We're empty. We want it to fulfill us, and maybe it does for five seconds, and then it doesn't. And we keep going after it, convinced that the next time it'll work. So maybe we don't use wealth to murder people, right? Because it says that in verse 6, but people do. So let's not discount that. People murder people all the time for money. In fact, it's usually money, whether it's a little bit or a lot, whether it's for the money you have in your pocket or for your, you know, your life insurance policy. Business deal gone bad. 
all the time. People want what they, they can't have, what they don't have, so they kill. It happens. But there's other language there of things that we do. You've condemned, that's a legal term, right? So we use our wealth in the legal system to abuse power, to get what we want. We think we become arrogant, right? We think that we are above the law when we're wealthy. We can do whatever we want and get out of it. it. Happens all the time. Read the news. Wealthy people get out of all sorts of trouble all the time. All the time. They also set up systems and structures that work for them at the abuse or at the expense of poor people. So we do. Murder the righteous person, we have them condemned. That's what wealth does. Now, maybe, maybe we're just envious, but Jesus says that's, you know, being angry, being envious, like that's the, that's the pathway. It's the same heart posture as murder, right? This is what we do. And you see this progression where wealth starts with love of money, and it walks you down this progression of now we're starting to make some real-life concessions here, all the way down to the fact that my life is ruined now, either emotionally, or either inside, or maybe outwardly as well. It's ruined. And we've seen this progression before. At the very beginning of James 1, it talks about the idea that we have these desires at war within us. They lead us to sin, and when sin is full-grown, leads to death. Remember that? Then uh, 1 Timothy says something similar I'm going to read for you. I have to turn there. Give me a moment. It says this. This is 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see that progression? Where are you in that progression? You just love it? Started to make some concessions in your life for it? It's not just, again, I said this at the beginning, it's not just, oh, it's just money, just stuff I have, and it's bad, and I'm fine. What did it say? Like, it's going to cause us to have a life ruined, take part in all kinds of evils, and eventually wander away from faith in God. Like, it's, it's the deal. So sometimes you can hear this, and you're just like, okay, I'm stuck then. What do I do? I'm stuck in this. And this, of all verses, or this, of all passages, falls off a cliff. There's not but God. Where, where is it? What do we do? So how can we be saved from this? Because, friends, this is in all of our hearts. It is. The propensity for this, the reality for this, love of wealth, love of money is in all of us. So what do we do? So I think we have to remember and turn to the gospel. I'm sure you've heard that, but here's what I mean. The foundation of the gospel that we believe in is founded upon the fact that God gives to us. Which I think is so wild, if you think about it. Because in our own hearts, we are just thirsty, craving more wealth, more money. We desire it. We're getting more and more. We want more and more. And so the cure for that, in God's wisdom, is you'd think to take away. Right? But God gives. How does he give? God gives to us. He sees us. He knows we're in despair. So God loves us and he sends his son for us, his only son for us, so that we we wouldn't go to ruin, we wouldn't perish, 
but we'd have eternal life with him. Right? Jesus, this is what I'm going to read to you in 2 Corinthians. Jesus gives up everything in heaven. Right? Gives his wealth, gives his status. Humbles himself, comes to earth as a baby for you and me. Hear this. This is verse 9, 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So he gave up everything for you. He gave his life on the cross for you. A sinner saved by Jesus. He gave his righteousness to you, his perfect life. You could never live. He gave it to you, and he took on your sin. He gave his spirit inside of you, that changed your entire life, brought you from death to life, and gave you a heart that now doesn't love wealth. It loves him. It loves his way. It loves what he calls us to. It gives us the ability to obey him. God adopted us into his family, made us his sons and his daughters. Right? We have a new identity in him, a new name in him. God gives us every good thing. We just sang about it. God provides for us. He knows what we need, and he gives it to us. We never have to worry because he's going to provide. So my identity now, if I'm living in that gospel, my identity in God allows me to live in that, in that way. I don't have to uh, believe the lies of wealth. I don't have to say, oh, I'll only be happy and satisfied if I have wealth. I'll only be safe and protected if I have wealth. I only have real value, and people really care about me only if I have wealth. We don't have to live like that. Right? My identity doesn't have to be in those things. My identity won't be in my net worth, or my house, or my cars, or my kids, or my relationship status, or my retirement, my education, my vacations, and my experiences. My identity's in Jesus. He loves me. He knows me. He provides for me. He cares about me. He knows what I need. He'll give it to me. I can trust him for that. He actually fulfills his promises. Jesus became poor so that we could become rich and not necessarily rich financially. Sorry. But truly rich. Rich in peace because we're living a righteous life. Rich in freedom because riches doesn't own us. We're not enslaved to it. Rich in our identity in him. Right? We're his children. We get to live with him forever where he'll continue to provide for us. And what's more, we need to believe that, but we need to play in that. Right? It's not just enough, not just mental ascent. I've got to try harder and think about the gospel. We have to exercise, act, take action in it. So we're a family here, right? We actually need to care for one another in this. Right? We're called as members of the church together to see the same darkness in our hearts as it relates to wealth or anything else for that matter, any idolatry, push back in the lives of others. Right? Hold each other accountable, protect each other, fight for each other. And what's more, the same thing. Take this to where you live. Take it to your neighbors and your community and your jobs. Everybody struggles with this in varying degrees, right? So exemplify a life where we actually trust Christ rather than wealth. Talk about it. Because we want to see others that are rich in God's family, not in the world's wealth, right? So I want just to give you some challenges real quick. How can we practically do this? I'm a practical person. I love practical things. So I'm going to give you some, I can't, I can't answer this question specifically for you. Sorry, I can't. But I can give you some categories to think about. Uh, so the first is we need to repent. 
God is speaking to an area or more of your life where you need to let go and trust him. Or you are building and amassing wealth for yourself in some way, shape, or form, and you need to let go of it. You need to repent of it and move away back to the Lord. I don't know what that is. You do. So we need to repent. We need to bring it to him. We need to allow God to break those ties that wealth has on our hearts and let God drive our decisions. Let his way rule our thinking. So three things I want to, three categories I want to give us, aside from repenting, we need to do that. First is to be generous. First Timothy 6 actually gives a charge to the wealthy and says, be generous, be rich in good works, be ready to share. So that way you can lay up treasures in heaven and take hold of real life, right? What is actually like, the good life in Christ. So we need to give, and we need to give big. Right? And I'm not saying giving out of our excess. We need to give in a way that it costs us. Right? You remember that parable about the woman that threw the two coins? Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. Why? She gave all she had. Everyone else gave out of their extra. Right? Limitations are God's grace. And when we give, it limits what we can do. That's grace, friend. Think about people that win the lottery. They ruin their lives. You know why? Because they have everything they want. So give. Give in a way where it lowers your standard of living a little bit. Right? We need to give big. We need to give big. We need to plan for it. We need to budget it. We need to schedule our schedules around it so we have pockets of time. We're giving our money, our gifts, our talents, our time, all to the Lord. So be generous. Second, be open. Other people need to know how you, like what you earn, what you spend, how you save. I'm sorry. Right, we are too isolated in this. It is not safe. It is not good. Right? Somebody other than your spouse needs to know how much you make. Sorry. I know, I have friends, I know, I know discipleship groups where they share budgets with each other. Say, this, is where, this is where we're at. Right? Because if we're not, if we're isolated in that, that's where the enemy wants us. We make bad decisions not according to God's way. We need to be open about that. And not just with a financial planner. Sorry. Financial plan. I just went and saw one. God be praised for wisdom. It's wonderful. But we want somebody that values what we value. God's way. Not necessarily the world's way. Saving and all those things. There's wise people. It's good. But we need to be open. Right? Again, not just your spouse. Spouses sometimes link up with bad decisions. It happens sometimes. Right? Um, and then the last is uh, be content. It's a hard one. Right? Be content. Paul says in Timothy, um, for godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing in this world and we're going to take nothing out. But with food and clothing we'll be content. And that's hard. Think if somebody just said, you have clothes and food, that's it. I don't know how I feel about that. Right? I think I'm owed more. I think I'd be happier with more. So for us, we actually have to think through what's too much? Or maybe better said, what's enough? In terms of our stuff or our money. And one great way to do that is to share. Right? Sometimes we're so out of touch with what God has actually given us. And all we think about all day long, all we daydream about is what I want, what I don't have. Share. 
Take the things God's given you and share them. You're more in touch with what you have. You are actually thankful for it versus envious of what you don't have. So share. My friends, the gospel cures us from this because we're not stuck in it. Sometimes we feel like we are. We're not. Right? Jesus and the identity he gives us in these things sets us free. Right? The end of that passage in Timothy says that we can take hold of that which is truly life. Right? Wealth is not the good life. Life in Christ is the good life. That's where I want to be. That's where I want us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you when it corrects us. And I pray for every heart here, God, that we would not be wrapped up in the way of the world. We would not be wrapped up in wealth. And its subtleties and the promises that it makes, that it will fulfill us or make us happy or bring us peace or a worry-free life. God, I pray that you would convince us in your mercy that your way is best. Convince us that life in you is the good life because it is. God, free us from the trap of wealth. Free us from the desire for more. Help us even now to be honest about the state of our life, honest about uh, the progression, where we are at. God, help us to repent and move back to you today. Not tomorrow, not the next day, today. And we pray that we'd actually be a family here too, that we would fight for each other and encourage each other in this, God. We thank you, we love you, it's in your name we pray.